Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot takes on the game we just finished playing, Voidfall. Before we give a description of the game, though, I do have some poll results to talk about. And I asked a poll on Twitter about buying upgraded components. Do you guys tend to upgrade components for your games? Do you buy aftermarket components or anything like that? Whenever possible. Chris, what's the most you've ever spent on a single component for a board game? (laughs) And then like total components for one board game. I'm not sure how to answer that. Does that include doing the upgrades like to get the deluxe Kickstarter version versus the regular Kickstarter version? Just to, just to give us one one uh, one component you paid for extra that wasn't part of one the original component. game. Yeah, Probably my favorite one is the little upgraded wooden uh, scissor tail fly catcher as the first player token on Wingspan. And I think it okay. cost me $4. It was worth everything. <laughs> well, that wasn't too expensive. That's not bad. What about you, Adam? Have you, have you ever uh, paid for upgraded components? I have. So I decked out Star Wars Rebellion pretty good. I ordered a an insert that fits the expansion and these little cases for the leaders. So you know, so that was a separate component that I bought as well. And then this little insert that I bought fits those can that component too so it's like a double i don't know it's like an inception component but i ended up spending i don't know 90 bucks on component upgrades for rebellion so yeah i've spent some money that game it kind of is useful because it organizes it so well it aids in the setup it has all the leaders kind of partitioned out so you know which leaders in which slot and what ships and what tanks and what units are in which little things you don't have to go searching around 30 seconds for each one. So overall, every time you play the game, it's going to save you a solid five minutes. So well worth the money there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, this is this is an area where I think, you know, generally I tend to be all like, you know, up on my high horse. You guys shouldn't spend money on Kickstarters. You shouldn't waste money on games you're not going to play, blah, blah, blah. This is where you guys can uh, get back at me because I definitely have a bad habit of, of overspending on upgraded components for games. And part of this comes from like, you know, when I started to build my collection, I just wasn't getting to play the games enough. So part of my, instead of going to buy new games, I just like hunt the internet for what can I upgrade in this game? What can I get better components? So I kind of got into that habit. And so on this Twitter poll, I said this weekend, I purchased the pre-painted minis for Cerebria second edition they weren't cheap, but they were the they weren't the, the most expensive component I bought either. And I paid after shipping about 160 bucks for those um, for those pre-painted minis for Cerebria. My goodness, Tim! Wow. But the, my chain of thought on that was that you know I actually the one thing that I purchased higher than that was the metal mechs for Scythe, like all sets of all the metal mechs, and they were about 50 bucks a set. Four sets was 200 dollars. So 200 dollars to upgrade the all the mechs in the Scythe game to to that. And then I was thinking about my side game and it's all upgraded except my minis aren't painted and I don't want to mess them up by painting them. So I I commissioned my side characters, the characters themselves, to be painted and really like a nice professional job. And I found a local woman who's doing this really nice paint jobs and it's going to cost me about $350 to do that. So I thought compared to the side minis, then those Cerebria minis, it's like a value to just buy the pre-painted ones that came from the factory. Super originally. value, man. You are saving right. money big time with those Cerebria minis. <laughs> Hey, Tim. <laughs> yeah. When was the last time you played Scythe? 
<laughs> we're going to play it in a couple weeks. We're going to play it two weeks from now. Um, but unfortunately, I don't even get to show you guys the painted minis because I, I told her I had to wait to get them started until after we got back from TimCon. But I do plan to, pl to you know, I plan to pay it, play it more after I've got the minis painted, right? <laughs> totally. Now you, now you can't play with them because they're like art pieces. You just <laughs> pull the shelves. <laughs> so anyway, I did. Up, I, I asked this question on Twitter, and the options I gave was zero dollars uh, for most expensive component, uh, one to twenty-five dollars, twenty-six to one hundred dollars, or greater than a hundred dollars. Twenty-four percent said zero dollars. So most people, or you know, a quarter of the people, have never even upgraded any components. Ten percent said one to twenty-five dollars. That's like your upgraded first player token, Chris, or you know, some like coin cases for your Orleans tokens or something like that. Um, twenty six to one hundred dollars was a pretty big percentage. About forty five percent spent that much on on a single upgrade for a game at some point, and then greater than a hundred percent, or sorry, greater than a hundred dollars was twenty one percent. So, you know, I'm not there's not that many people that uh, I'm beating. Well, I don't know. I didn't put over greater than two hundred dollars on there, but <laughs> but just remember, as much as you guys want to uh, you know pick on me about this, my my game collection probably still costs less than yours, even with these expensive upgrades because i have a smaller game collection of games that i'm actually playing and not games that are just sitting on my shelf not doing anything so just remember that and let me just say for the record nobody's actually picked on tim for anything i didn't know we were having a competition about who spent the most on board game collection either i guess that's a, a thing too that's uh, apparently that's a thing apparently, i guess maybe i'm I'm a little self-conscious about it, I guess. I'll just say that. <laughs> Dude, I say, you know what? You've earned it. You love your games. Spend it. All right. I like that. I like that attitude. You know, I do. There's one big problem I have, though, with, with upgrading components in games. Because I don't mind doing it. If it's a game I love, it's a game I'm going to play. But once I've done that, then I really have a hard time getting rid of the game. And so there are a couple games on my shelves that I've done upgrades for. And I don't think I really need to play them anymore, even though they're decent games. But then I don't want to get rid of them because I'm like, oh, I got this perfectly upgraded kit it's beautiful and i know i'm never gonna get my money back if i sell it so you know i don't know i it's, it's one of the drawbacks like any stuff you know once you once you have something then you feel like you have to take care of that stuff and, and that's kind of how these upgraded components can mess with you too i don't know tim i had this might be an exception because i had scythe with all the metal coins and all the realistic resources i didn't have metal mechs or commissioned painted characters or anything like that but i did have a folded space insert with that as well and i was able to get a decent chunk of money back probably more than i would have without any of that stuff so you know some people can't appreciate it and maybe again scythe might have been an exception since it is a more you know often sought after game more so than than lots of other niche games that are out there yeah that will wrap up um that topic so let's jump into a description of voidfall in Voidfall, you play as galactic civilizations trying to ward off the Voidborn, a mysterious ancient threat that's trying to take control of all sentient life, while also trying to build a thriving economy and become the most prosperous civilization. You'll have an asymmetric civilization that will have a unique starting technology, some specialized scoring goals, and you'll also start with guilds in a shipyard in your home world, while starting with some fleets in your home world and an adjacent world. At the start of each of the three eras of the game, an event card will be revealed showing some details about the alien void fallen ships, how many focus rounds there will be in that era, and some scoring goals that will be available for that era. Then players take turns taking a focus turn. A focus turn consists of choosing one of the focus cards in that player's hand and choosing two of the three actions printed on that card. Each player starts with the same nine focus cards, and most actions have a cost in either resources, corruption, or requiring 
placing a Voidborn ship in an adjacent sector. The actions on the cards include things like building fleets at shipyards, producing goods based on the number of guilds and population level in their controlled sectors, attacking an adjacent sector, moving up one of the three civilization tracks on their player board and getting a related benefit, placing a guild, getting an agenda card, acquiring or upgraded technology, and many, many other things. After the player takes both actions, they discard that focus card and it won't be available to be used until the next era. When a player attacks an adjacent sector on the map with either an opponent or a Voidborn fleet, a conflict begins. Conflict is completely deterministic based on the number and power of attacking and defending fleets and some special abilities available based on the type of structures and fleets in the conflict. When an attacker takes a space from an opposing player, all structures on that space are destroyed, and if there's a corruption on that space, then the attacking player gets the corruption, which they can then leave on the sector or they can move to their player board, which will either give them a negative ongoing effect or prevent the player from playing additional agenda cards. Then they score points equal to the population of the sector they conquered, multiplied by the number of uncorrupted sectors they control. Now I've mentioned agendas a few times. These are the primary ways that players will score points during the game. Each player starts with an agenda that gives them several ways to score points at the end of each era. For example, points for the number of bankers, guilds they control, or points for having population of 5 or 6 on a controlled sector. During the course of the game, you can gain up to 3 additional agenda cards, and each agenda card will give you additional conditions to meet to score points at the end of each era. At the end of each era, players will score the points for conditions they met on their agenda cards, and will pay resources to cover upkeep costs for having certain things in their civilization, like some advanced techs, structures, and banking guilds. The first player for the next round is decided based on the time numbers added up on the focus cards each player played in the previous era. At the end of the third era scoring phase, the player with the most points is the winner. There are a whole bunch of other mechanisms, components, and rules that I didn't cover here, but that should give you a general idea of how the game is played. Voidfall was designed by David Turksey and Nigel Buckle and is being published by Mind Clash Games. And let's talk a little bit about Voidfall. First, a couple things. This game is still on Kickstarter right now, and we know that we're playing with some prototype rules. We played on a tabletop simulator mod that uh, Mind Clash Games provided for people to test the game out, but they said it's not completed. They're still working on balance issues with some of the factions and the cards, and they're still adjusting iconography. And I've been following some of the Board Game Geek forums on this game, and even the designers, David Turksey and Nigel Buckle, have been responding to people that are asking questions about combat and where to, you know where the Voidborn uh, appear. And they're saying, yeah, we're still adjusting some of that stuff. So just keep that in mind. We are playing a version of the game that is not finalized. It's not complete. But we still really wanted to check it out. This was kind of, you know, a little bit of a selfish thing for me because I've been thinking about backing this Kickstarter and I was really interested to know how it would play, whether it was a game that I wanted to add to my collection. Um, but also we thought it might be helpful for people trying to make that decision. So we wanted to try this out, get this review in before the Kickstarter finished. So let's start with Adam. Adam, there's a lot of mechanisms in here. Something that stood out to you tonight. Specific thing that stood out to me from this game my goodness it's hard to narrow down to one thing since it's just it's a conglomerate of many many things but i'll try to pick i, I want to start with the player board because that thing is pretty rad and this has to do with with theme and production as well but that's kind of your, one of the central focuses is your player board so on there there's three tracks that you're climbing up so i'll just talk about the track mechanism. Lots of other games have a track mechanism. This game's no exception, and it's one of the more resource management type aspects of the game. You can 
climb up these three. I think it's political and I don't know the other the names of the other two, uh, production and something else. So this just ties into many of the different other actions you can do. You can gain a bonus and climb up these tracks. And as you do, there's different segments. You can sort of bump yourself up into a higher notch and that higher notch of that track will unlock other things that your faction can do and that kind of expands. So that theme is kind of repeated as you work your way up, that opens up more opportunities for you. And that's kind of repeated throughout the play as the game goes on, more avenues kind of open up for you and this game kind of blossoms and opens up and just kind of proliferates out. So that's not a specific mechanism, but it's kind of an overarching theme to this game. Yeah, I, I think, you you know, those tracks are definitely a specific mechanism, and I think they're really cool. Um, one, it's a lot of variety, a lot of variability. Now, the, the four factions that were in the Tabletop Simulator mod, the three that we played with today, the tracks are all the same on each of the boards. Now, each of the tracks is very unique, and every space on each of those tracks gives a different type of bonus. So that's going to change things up. And from my perspective, I got like maybe three spaces up all three of the tracks, maybe five up on one of them. So there was a whole bunch of bonuses I didn't even get to see in this game. But you could see a game where you kind of focused on one track or focused on, you know, one or two tracks that the game is going to play out. The, the bonuses that become available are going to play out very differently in another play. But these are the four basic factions already unlocked in the Kickstarter, seven additional asymmetric factions where the tracks are all completely different. The three tracks that you have have completely different bonuses. They're going to, you know, like play out completely differently. They're going to give you different things. So that adds just a whole lot of space. And as Adam mentioned, that's a very small piece of this whole set of, of things to do. And that's kind of a mind clash staple, right? They have an A side and a B side, and maybe the B side is like the symmetric one with weird stuff that's going on. And the A side might be the same across, you know, different, different factions. But yeah, a lot of variety and lots of Mind Clash stuff and a lot of different avenues to explore. Chris, what about you? Do you have a me uh, mechanism that, that stood out? First, like, what the hell? I mean, I, I gotta, <laughs> I, I want to address the elephant in the room with this game. There is a lot of damn stuff going on. And, and I feel like there are more, there's, there's more pieces, more mechanisms of this game than you can shake a stick at. And even watching the uh, the instructional video on Rado Runs Through, I think about three or four times, dude said, you know, there's just a lot of stuff happening here. I can't possibly cover it all. And that was in an hour and 15 minute video. So I think that's one thing, even though it's not a specific mechanism, I just want to acknowledge that there is a lot of things happening in this game and it's extremely complex. So having said all that, let me go back and talk about a specific mechanism. And for me, I thought the most interesting mechanism was the combat. And it is extremely deterministic. There's no dice rolls in this. You plan out your combat to the, the smallest degree and you complete, you know going into combat exactly what the outcome is going to be. All of the, the power, all of the abilities of your ships, all of the defensive capabilities, all of that stuff is laid out. And so when you go in, you know exactly how that is going to, how it's going to take place and how it's going to turn out. And so there's none of that luck-based dice rolling and, the, you know, you, you have a really lousy game because you end up having a few bad rolls of the dice. It allowed you to do a lot more effective planning. And I thought that was really interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I do enjoy a good roll of the dice, and I think that makes for a lot of excitement. This was a little bit more dry, but it also it was really appealing because of the fact that you could really strategize in a, in a very specific way what you're going to do in any given combat. Chris, that's really interesting to hear you say, because I honestly thought you were going to hate that part of this game. Like, I going into it, I thought that was going to be the one thing where we get into the first combat, and you'd go into it and be like, that's it. 
Like that's exactly what I expected your you know reaction to be to it. So I'm kind of surprised to hear that you actually appreciated it for what it gave you and the opportunity it gave you. And yeah, you don't you don't have all this big setup in your planning, and then all of a sudden you just lose everything because you just roll a bunch of ones. So you know I think that's the intent here that this is very much a euro game, and they didn't want to take all that planning away on just some bad dice rolls. And I think it makes sense for that purpose. But I'm I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you actually didn't mind it too much. Well, you know, you actually used a great word, Tim, and you said appreciated it because honestly, if I had to compare this and one of the other games that I think is an obvious comparison, which is Eclipse that we've played quite a bit, I enjoy the rolling dice a little bit more, but I appreciated this. I, I really, I really did appreciate how they did this and how this could be very appealing. It, you know, it does appeal to a very different kind of player. And so I thought it was, it was very nicely done. Yeah. What they say too, uh, from a thematic perspective, I think it's even spelled out in the rule book is that basically, you know, the, each era is supposed to happen over like 10 years of time. So when you're going into a conflict, it's not a conflict that's happening between a couple of fighters that are having a tactical, you know, dogfight. This is happening between 3000 ships. Each cube represents like a thousand ships or a hundred ships that are, you know, in this long war over several years and the resolution, you know, really comes down to who has the most military might. And that can all kind of be planned out before you go into it. So that's that's how it's represented here. So I think the the core mechanism of this game is the way that you take actions. And you know, basically everybody starts with a hand of seven cards, I think, seven or eight cards. And the cards are all the same. Nobody's cards are different. And each of the cards has three actions on them. And each of the actions are very unique. I don't think there's an action with the same cost and benefit repeated across any of these. So there's yeah, it's nine cards, three actions each. That's 27 different actions you can take. And on your turn, basically what you do is you take one of these cards and you pick two of the actions, two of the three actions off that card. Now, I've mentioned in a couple of recent episodes how much I love the concept of you get to make a decision on your turn, but when you get to combo two decisions together, you get to make two decisions at the same time and think about how they're going to play the best together. This game, just you're doing it every round, so it's great. It doesn't give you the variety that something like, you know, Rococo did even or um, Underwater Cities does where the action that you're taking is comboing with a completely different element. So the, the, the variety is going to be there. Here you're taking two actions that are on the same card. They have some similarities, but it was still fun to always be making that decision. So I really liked that part of it. It was a challenge to get into at first because it is 27 different icon only based abilities and different costs. And, you know, I think by the end of the game, I can look at any of those cards now and tell you exactly what any of those actions do without referencing something. So it wasn't too bad. I've definitely seen games with harder iconography to parse. And Cerebra is a great example that I talked about last week. But by the end of the game, I felt I had a good handle of it. You know, the thing that was most exciting for me is that we're coming into the second round of the final era, and there's going to be five rounds that time and I finished up the second round I said I know exactly what my next three rounds are going to be like I already had at that point I finally grasped how all this stuff was working together and what my goals were and what I was going to try to do that I knew what the rest of my round was going to was going to play out to be so that was pretty fun to finally hit that after kind of struggling through all that iconography and, and the decisions throughout the game. I want to say at, at first the first round I was looking at these cards I was just overwhelmed i was like oh i don't i don't know what to do i don't know what this stuff means how am i gonna but by the end of the first round going into that second round and then definitely the third round the third era the third phase i had it figured out i was like okay i'm gonna do this one and then this one like you're saying tim it 
it starts to line up and the pieces start to come together a little bit at least and it it becomes easy it becomes fun if i could go back and say my favorite mechanism that's this would be the one that stood out to me those cards and the ability to forward plan is absolutely fantastic what did you guys think about this the the way the scoring works in this game you know like there's a few ways to score but Probably the biggest points come from those agenda cards. How, how did that How did that feel for you? Did you like it? Did you dislike it? I was kind of neutral on it. I mean, I thought it was perfectly fine. I It didn't strike me as particularly unique. It struck me as very similar to a lot of other games where you have some kind of a, a personalized goal card or cards, and you're trying to meet those goals. I think one thing that maybe makes this a little bit different, one of the things you're attempting to do is get multiple agenda cards. So... There are other games where you can get additional cards that will provide you in-game scoring goals. But this one, that is sort of one of the standard things you're trying to do. In fact, I think the player boards give you spaces for four agenda cards. So it maybe is a little bit larger part of the overall strategy. And I, and I thought that was fine. Yeah, the agenda cards here. So that's one of the aspects of scoring, right? So it's just a, a basic part of that is your starting agenda card which has some goals that you can just go for every round and you know that they're going to be there always and you know what to go for. So some of those are the number of productions that you have out there on every tile, the number of, I don't know which one it's called, the one that gives you money, the Banker's Guild, I think it is. So that one gives you four points, whereas the other ones give you two points, at least on mine. I think that's across all of them. So yeah, that gives you some sturdy, solid scoring to go for the rest of the game and then you have those options up there available to purchase or buy or collect and so you can kind of pinpoint your strategy narrow it down to go for a specific agenda and rescore that every time at the end of every round so i thought that was kind of a nice a nice twist for for scoring what about you what do you think of those 10 yeah see to me i thought the agendas were one of the most unique and most challenging parts of this game because there's a couple of parts that come into it one is that there's always a, just a few agendas up on the offering to pick from and they have a one-time benefit when you play them. And then they also have the the scoring bonuses. But the scoring bonuses, it had a top scoring bonus. So like if you could meet this one thing, then you get that bonus. And that was a really high threshold. For me, I found them all to be really challenging to actually even hit that top scoring bonus. But then you would trigger another scoring bonus underneath that that was much easier to hit and could multiply on multiple on a, on a bunch of things from what I could see on all the agenda cards we saw. So it was pretty neat to see. And I think I really missed that until late in the game this time. It's like I should have been specifically planning for some of those agendas very early in the game. And I, I would have been much more successful. Did it feel like anachrony to you when that um, when the event happens and you have to meet the the top portion of your card in order mm -hmm. to score the VOD. And I, I got a little bit of that kind of feel from some of the agenda cards. Yeah, now you mentioned that while we were playing, and I I, I agree now that you mentioned that. I, I do remember that that was one of the keys that you kind of have to plan for over the course of the game to to hit the benefit. But I like that this one, it was even, it was more variable and it could change throughout the game. So, you know, like you could kind of, you know, it's just such an interesting puzzle because also you have to get the agenda card, which goes in your hand, and then you can play it when you play the related card with it. And so oftentimes I was like, I want that agenda, but I already played that card this round. So I won't even get to play it till next round and activate it. So I better try to grab a different agenda. So there is that puzzle. And then there is the fact that you only have four slots, but if you get corruption, what felt like the less, the least painful place to put corruption on your board was those, those agenda slots, which would block them out. But then you're limited by how many you can get there. So it's just like this big puzzle on how are you going to, get these big scoring opportunities and can you hit them even if you got them out i think adam both you and i had an agenda on our mat that we never we couldn't even score like we didn't even hit the top bonus for it mm -hmm. 
So I, th- I thought it was a really cool puzzle and a really way to hone your, your focus of your game. Like by the t- end of the game with the agendas I had, I had no interest in conflict out on the board, even though that's another way to get points because I was going to benefit a lot more by turtle, like kind of turtling and building up bases and, and putting those out there. Well, Chris, you had an early agenda. I think that was motivating you to like, maybe your starting agenda was motivating you to stretch, you know, spread out. So I think it's pretty neat that that's going to really change your strategy, what you're going on, what you're focusing on, what cards are important to you every game. So I loved it. I thought, I thought that was a really cool part of this. You mentioned the corruption again, another comparison to anachrony is like the, what is it called? The anomalies? Anomalies, I think. yeah. yeah. So yeah, as those anomalies get out there and spread, it kind of limits your options. Same thing here with the corruption. Those that go out there and kind of limit your options to what you can do. And they're kind of a nuisance and you try to clear them out as the game goes on. And hopefully you get some sort of bonus or benefit that lets you clear them out as, as the game goes on to open those spaces back up. So for me, there was definitely a few, more than more than just a few, more than a slight comparison to anachrony here. Hmm. I can see that. And in fact, even more so if you remember the Fractures of Time expansion there, where as you get glitches uh, from using yes. those, that, you know, that one power, then you would like interrupt other things on your on your player board. So the corruption yep. kind of did that. You could also leave it out on the board where you just would get less scoring for it and couldn't build bases out there. Yeah, I can see that for sure. There, there definitely seems to be some clear uh, links to some of the elements of anachrony uh, and what's here. Although the gameplay is very, very different. Like it's not the same gameplay at all. Um, you know, one is a worker placement game and one is a right action selection, like hand hand management and an area control type of game. Going back to the cards, the, I was going to say it kind of reminded me of Concordia a little yeah. bit. You have these cards in your hand and you're putting them out there and, you know, you don't get them all back until the end of the round. But I had that kind of Concordia feel, but this was actually fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the corruption is actually, I think, a good a good example of something that I liked about this game. I can't tell you why this felt this way, but it but it did. It felt very much like there was so many things happening in the game in so many different ways to score and to proceed and to try to you know maximize your your engine here that you started going down some roads where you were completely abandoning certain things and really focusing on other things. Like, for example, one of the things that pops up a lot in the cards is scoring and producing science and money. By the end of the game, it occurred to me that I did not have a single science-producing token or a single money-producing token. And so there was a good, I don't know, three or four spots out of the 27 on the, the cards total that I never used at all because they were completely useless to me. And that didn't hurt me terribly. I was able to you know, focus on other things and maximize those. But the corruption was one that really stuck out to me because that was kind of how, as the game progressed, my engine sort of, sort of moved me. You know, the corruption is something that you're watching out for the entire game. You pick up corruption when you, you take certain actions. You pick up corruption when you do a combat with the Voidborn and you end up getting corruption that, that basically it's like your ship gets corrupted just by fighting them. And so there's a kind of a bit of paranoia about you know, getting too much corruption and having it start to take up those spaces on your board that could otherwise be used for something really productive. I managed to get a technology card called Purification that allowed me to routinely take corruption off of my board and then discard it. And it took a little bit of work to do, but all of a sudden corruption became a lot less of a concern for me and I could really move forward with those things 
the the items that brought you corruption and that was really kind of great but again it was the same same scenario as before even though i had this ability to ditch one of the most difficult things of the game i didn't win the game and and it was all very close so the fact that i think at the end of the game we were maybe five points swing between adam who was first and and tim who was last and we were all so we were all clumped right there and we all proceeded in our game in very very different ways and i, and I thought that was really kind of neat i noticed you had to call out that i was last tonight Th- thanks for bringing that up I'll, i will say we did have to cut this short it wasn't a, a complete game so yeah we, yeah we ran out of time so we we ended up uh, we just stopped three turns before the end of the final era and scored up there so we didn't we, we have to put a big old asterisk on this gameplay but i think we all got a pretty good sense for how the game was working and, and how it was going to play out i guess uh I, I could save this question for i was going to ask does this game feel did it feel like a like a 4x game to you did it get that did you get that sense we can save that for later or you want to tackle this now no, I mean, we can talk about it. I, I think it felt like a Euro game with a theme on it. And, you know, I think I think this is where it's probably going to not resonate with a lot of people that are looking for a 4X game because it doesn't really feel like a 4X game. Now, there are different scenarios you can play and some of the scenarios are made to have more person-to-person, com- you know, combat and aggression and things like that. But yeah, I would say there really wasn't anything that felt like, it didn't feel like Eclipse. It didn't feel like uh, what I assume... Um, Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium feels like, you know, so it, it has the same sci-fi theme. You're in a galaxy, you're spreading out a little bit, you're trying to build your civilizations. So it, it has that theme on it, but it definitely doesn't play like a, like a similar type of game. What about you, Adam? This felt a lot more to me like a game like Gaia Project than it mm-hmm. did yeah. than Eclipse. For sure. That's that's how I'll put it. Chris, what are your thoughts? I want to hear from the horse's mouth. Well, it's funny because I had that exact same question that I was going to ask of you guys. Does this feel more like a Euro game or does this feel more like a, like a 4X? It's so funny because I was thinking as I was playing, this is, this is all kind of going through my head, that I'd be looking at this board going, man, look at this 4X game and it feels so 4X. And then I'd back off and say, but wait, these things that I'm doing, they don't feel very 4X. They feel yeah. very... They feel very, you know, resource management. And I kind of, yeah, at different points of the game, I'd be thinking through this going, man, this really feels like this or it really feels like that. And I just, by the end of it, I couldn't tell what the heck I was playing. So there was a, <laughs> there was, it, was it was a little bit, um, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. Yeah. And, and the, the, listen, the designers and Mind Clash have said like very straightforward, this is their marketing thing, right? This is their whole spiel is this is a 4X game for Euro lovers. And so they're not trying to hide the fact that this is a Euro game. Now, one of the things I thought was fun about it was that the map, the things that were on the map, the Voidborn even, it was just another Euro resource that you were playing with. Like, you know, am I building up enough of this resource, which was, you know, fleet power to then move into this sector and get access to more resources? So if you if you put a dry, you know, European theme like on a city on it, you could you could turn this into Orleans or whatever, and it just would be a lot drier. So, you know, that's kind of how it felt. Now, I do think, though, that if you were playing on one of the more aggressive scenarios where you had to stress about the person next to you, oh, he's got a couple of dreadnoughts, I better build up some sectors to protect myself here, or I better evacuate and move out of this other sector because I'm going to lose this one and I better reinforce myself. I have a feeling that that would feel more 4 y because you definitely would always be watching it be this Cold War thing where you're watching the people around you, you're watching how they're building up their military and how you're having to protect against yourself. I, I think the feeling would change a little bit there and the focus on the game and what we're trying to do would change a little bit if you had that threat. But in this game where we were kind of on opposite ends of the board and right up in the last era, we were almost on top of each other. So there could have been a conflict. 
But without that threat of conflict, I didn't really care too much about how much. If I wanted to focus on my other parts of my scoring engine, I didn't care how much fleet I had. I didn't care how many, you know, how much protection. I didn't care what size ships I had. None of that stuff really mattered too much. So that part of the puzzle just didn't feel like a space battle puzzle. It, I think it would in a more aggressive scenario, though, a little bit more. Now, Chris, were you planning to go in a sector with Tim or I in there and duke it out? Or were you? did you have the ability to get in there? I don't think that I had any sense of strategy going into this game. <laughs> okay. I was stumbling around from thing to thing, just like I assume you guys were. Maybe you were. Maybe, maybe you got it better <laughs> than I did. I certainly would have attacked you if the opportunity presented itself. But that was really kind of interesting that we never really got to that point that there was all this stuff happening. There was people building up. There was Voidborn void building up in the spaces. And yet it never felt very aggressive. And the idea of someone attacking never really started coming into play until the third era. In fact, at that point, people started saying, well, Chris has these dreadnoughts, which just for the record, I used exactly once and never made any kind of you know, use out of really. Then maybe we better build up some space here or build up some defenses so that Chris can't attack us with his dreadnoughts. But even that was kind of an afterthought. I felt like there really was not any aggressiveness in this game. But yeah, just again, I, I want to reinforce here because if people are listening and they're like, oh, I don't, want, I don't want to have anything to do with that game where you can't actually interact. This was the starter scenario. It was made to be as easy and light as possible. And the other scenarios get more aggressive. There's, there's ways to move closer into other areas quicker. And that was just at a glance. And that's, you know, there's a bunch of scenarios that are available. There's a bunch more that have come up in the, in the uh, stretch goals and the Kickstarter. So I think there's going to be a lot of different ways to play this game. And if you want to play this as a Euro where you're just kind of doing your own thing and building up your resources, I think we had that option today. And that's what we were doing. And it was a fun way to learn the game. Um, without the stress of that threat going on. But I think that you could play this as a game where you're being much more aggressive and you're building up forces and you're you're coming in and taking stuff away from people. And, and the point swing comes out of the fact that you just destroyed somebody's production engine and, and stuff like that versus just working on your own engine. So I think the opportunity is there and I don't want to underplay that. Is there a scenario where the Voidborn attack you in other words, the way we played it, they're all—they're basically a—they're um, an impediment. They're, they're, they're an obstacle. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yes, uh, the two actually. Specifically, this game was made from the beginning with a cooperative mode and a solo mode, and both of those is where the Void Barn are intentionally coming after and getting aggressive with you. So I think. I think they intentionally left that out of the competitive play. And I don't know that there isn't a single competitive scenario that does that because maybe there is. But if you can imagine, you know, a lot of the times the way that an AI is going to be aggressive is going to be random. And so if you're doing this big heavy Euro and then randomly somebody's getting attacked more than somebody else, I could see that being yeah. a challenge. And well, it's no different than like the this. Ancients and the Guardians and Eclipse, right? They just sit there until you come in and move in on them. So that's, that's right. Similar in that regard. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's actually uh, absolutely right. I was going to ask, while we're on the 4X okay. subject still, the explore aspect of this game. Now, maybe there's variants that have a little more explore. I felt like there was zero exploration going on here. Do you guys get a sense of that? Or are there variants where they're, you're flipping tiles or discovering stuff, exploring? I do know that well, there, there's a little bit of exploration in that when you go into a um, an area, you can take over, you get one of those tokens that get flipped. So you get some resources from it. So there's that. And that doesn't really differ that much from Eclipse where you move into a sector and then you get a new production planet or you get a couple resources or whatever. You know, it's minor, but that's what you're getting on these tokens is a production resource or whatever. There's a scenario I know though where there there are fallen houses. So basically these are supposed to be kind of like civilizations that are almost wiped out that you can go and move into their sector and you might lose, it's like you, you lose a force 
but then you get the benefit of this house. And so that's going to be spread out over the board and randomized every game. So that probably adds a little bit of an exploration feel to it. The amount of variance well. and just, just different setup patterns and things you can do are pretty neat here. There's I think there's going to be something for everybody, even the most diehard Forex, the most diehard resource management people will probably have something in this game for them. Yeah, except for not not gateway uh, players, not players that like later games. There's, I don't think there's going to be anything in here for you. But um, if you like a heavy game, I think you'll find you'll probably be able to find it in here. Uh, a couple, just a couple more quick mechanisms because I, I know we're we're getting late here. But I I really dug the all the things that happened at the beginning of the round and at the end of the round. You know, some of it felt like upkeep, but I like the the way you pick first player. That was such a fun mini game to me, right? Like basically whoever had played the most time costs on the cards from the previous round would go last. So whoever played the least would go first, but that didn't mean they were actually going to go first. What that meant is that they get to pick which place they're going to start in. And depending on whether you were going first, second, or third, you'd get a different random benefit getting worse, you know, like better benefits the later you go in the round. And also you would get less points for starting that round. So that was a really fun decision for a simple little add-on that also helps set who is the first player in the next round and what benefits you got going into it. I like that. I like that whoever was going to go first got to choose from two um, two random uh, event cards that kind of set like how strong were the Voidborn that round? What bonus did you get? What were some extra scoring benefits it got? And how many cards did you get to play that turn? So I like that little phase too. That decision point was was fun to think through and talk through and 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 explore. So for things that are normally just like upkeep, set this up, set this up. These were actually fun decisions to make while you were getting yourself set up. Another mechanism that stood out for me was the amount of points people might say people might say point salad i don't think so i think it's point resolution given the adequate amount of points for different aspects of the game so i think if we played this all the way through and i think i've heard scores up in the 300s and so mm. when we finished we were all around 250 or mid 200s and that seemed about right for the different actions out there it didn't seem point salad it seemed like they're all hard earned and the amount of points you got for doing the different actions seemed all relatively weighted correctly. So I appreciate the way that they that they scored all the different potential areas where you could get points from. Yeah, it was interesting, right? You could get points for going into conflict and then you basically get more points for the amount of population in that area that you just defeated multiplied times the number of uncorrupted sectors you controlled. So the more you spread out, the more points you are going to get there. So if you really go a more aggressive strategy, you have an opportunity to get points and that's going to multiply as you get further into the game. And then you have some cards that give you points for the number of production tokens you have. So that, that was a small scoring opportunity, but otherwise everything came from the agendas. And I thought it was awesome. Like every era, you know, we all had different agendas we're scoring off of. We'd had some different opportunities to get points throughout the games. And every era we ended up within 10 to 15 points from each other. And it was escalating the first round we were in the 50s the next round we're in the 150s the third round we're in the you know 250s and like you said if we'd been able to finish up the game probably would have been in the 350s so pretty cool that we had different strategies different point scorings but it wasn't a point salad it was very specific things you had to Mm -hmm. work towards and achieve and somebody could really run away with the game if they had planned well enough to get three of those agenda cards triggered instead of one like we did you know we all hit like one agenda card there and that's one other thing i'll say though is i think that it was pretty clear that we played this game very inefficiently and knowing what you know going to the next game of this i guarantee you that we would have a lot more success you know like we would have scored a lot more at the end of the game but also i think we would have spread out a lot more on the map 
I think we would have been more efficient in our early actions that would have set us up to be able to move further, to take more actions, moving higher up those tracks, which would have gotten us you know, stronger benefits. So I think everything we did in this game, I think we left a lot of actions on the table, just not planning ahead and leaving ourselves the resources for it and stuff like that. This is a game that you're going to get better at after you play. Sure, this it, game so. especially felt very exploratory. We were working out the levers and figuring out the mechanisms. I don't want to be too harsh on the game on this point because I think that a lot of it could be mitigated if I knew the game better. But one thing that I felt like was a little bit overdone was there were too many actions that prompted putting out more Voidborn, the you know the enemies on the board or their defensive mechanisms. So essentially, every um, every move you took, you were almost putting out some new you know brick in the wall of defense against moving around. And I think somebody had autonomous drones that really kind of let you go in there and kick butt. And I had a couple things with my dreadnoughts that let you go in and be a little bit more aggressive. But I felt at least. In my first game, I was being deterred from moving a lot by the fact that I was constantly putting out new enemies out on the board that were you know, serving as more and more of a deterrent. Again, I, I feel like that might change if I played it more and if I understood a little better how to, how to go about attacking, but, but I did note that. But very specifically, too, I want to mention in the Board Game Geek forums, David Turksey responded to somebody's criticism mm. of that exact thing, and he said yes too many boardborn are getting put out and we're adjusting those levels oh, good. today. So you may see that rule book updated soon. You may see some changes to that before the campaign's even over or sometime after, you know, they are still working through the kinks and okay. doing play testing here. Um, but that was one of the things he did note that they want to make a better experience. Well, we're taking players. shots at the prototype. I'm going to call out <laughs> the, um, what was it? The, the combat little key card up there. The sharp initiative card, yeah. and what was the repeating? Yeah, the the barrage or whatever. So, yeah, it was. that was yeah. Yeah. not the easiest to understand. This game is very icon heavy, and for some reason, those icons didn't quite stick in the battle. The combat wasn't quite as intuitive for a deterministic combat as you might think. Yeah, what, what Adam's trying to talk about is the there's basically a player aid that is there to reference how combat works. And so it's set up in a little chart where you're supposed to look at, you know, the first round of combat as you go in there and you see if there's any defensive mechanisms that do something when you first move in. And then you go into the actual attacking phase. So there's an, there's an approach phase and then the, the salvo is what the word is. Salvo, right? yeah, there you go. And then each of the, depending on the types of bases that are out, the types of ships that are out, it's supposed to do different things on the, on the chart. And that we just found that completely unusable like even by the end of the game where we knew exactly how everything worked we still couldn't quite understand how the chart was supposed to help us or, or be a reference for us so unfortunately i don't think it solved the problem now maybe once you really know it and it's just that maybe it's just there to be a reference to say like okay i don't have to go and open the rule book and remember how much you know like who's got absorbability and who's got you know this other thing so maybe it would be useful. I don't know. I felt like the little chart that was in the rule book was much easier to use than that. I feel like if Nigel Buckle or David Turtsey or Paul Grogan, which by the way, I used that video. I just want to give a shout out to that video. Sorry, let me find that real quick. Gaming rules. The gaming yeah, the rules. gaming rules video, gaming video was well done. That helped me figure out the rules as published. I feel like if they were here to explain that combat to me, it would have been easy. But looking at this little chart and then trying to decipher it from that, just didn't stick for some reason. All right. That's a lot we talked about. Guys, anything else you really wanted to touch on with mechanisms before we jump into the production? I'm sure that we could sit here and talk all day long. There's a lot of things we didn't touch on, but I think we hit some of the, core, the key ones. 
Let's talk about the production and the theme of this game. We've, done, we've talked a little bit about the 4X theme that's coming in here. Now, obviously, we played on Tabletop Simulator, and we know that this Kickstarter is still in the works, and they're, they're going through, you know, bone, uh, through upgraded components based on stretch goals and things like that. So we didn't see the final production. I want to start by just talking about the artwork. The player board artwork was beautiful, evocative. What a cool, like, representation of these different you know, races that are stretched across the galaxy that clearly have very different civilizations going on. I think Ian O'Toole really knocked out of the park with the sci-fi um, look and feel of this game. So from a component perspective, everything looks totally beautiful. The cards, the card all has artwork on it, even though there's a lot of stuff going on in the cards, there's, there's cool artwork on the cards. So that's what I want to start with. I thought the artwork was great. What about you guys? Anything that stands out to you from a production? It's hard to argue with what you just said, Tim. I mean, it is a great looking game. And I think, you know, we played the TTS mod, which is obviously going to be a little bit less satisfying because you don't get to hold those big chunky miniatures. And and so I, I would love to try the physical version of this game. All indications that we've seen from the Kickstarter campaign is that it's going to look phenomenal. So I, I, I think it's going to be a super satisfying game to hold in your hands. You know, Tool and Mind Clash games have a reputation and a stellar reputation and it looks like they're gonna meet or exceed that reputation here just the player boards i touched on it earlier the player boards alone look amazing you can you slot in your faction into the into the board you slot in the little agenda cards on the side you slot in cards on the top and they it's not just like you tuck them there's actually a little slot where they fit in there snugly and they're not going to move around on you the ships all look fantastic. The sectors, it looks like they're going to be triple layered. They have, again, the upgrades for the metal components. Um, so it's going to be anachrony level or higher, it looks like to me. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, and it's going to be, like most their, most Mind Clash's productions, they're going to have two levels. There's going to be the basic version, which is still going to have the beautiful artwork and a lot of the, like, they think the two-layer, double-layer player boards, but most of the components are going to be cardboard in that version. So your ships are all cardboard, your your tokens are all cardboard and things like that. But then, of course, they have their, I don't I forget what it's called, but their deluxe edition. And that's where you get big plastic minis, all different models of ships. Uh, they've just, a couple of the stretch goals already, they have those uh, void storms, which are these kind of barriers that go between different sectors. Those are now going to be plastic minis. Um, the it's, it's pretty clear they're going to release plastic minis for the Voidborn ships as well. There is a upgrade and add-on where you can upgrade all the, the sector um, production buildings, the guild uh, icons, as well as the, the little buildings, all to metal tokens. So the installations, yeah, so those are going to be metal if you do the add-on. Obviously, it's going to get pretty expensive if you get the top production here. Uh, I think it's going to be worth it, though. I think it's going to be really amazing production to play with if you, you, know, if you care about that stuff. Uh, you're going to get a lot of it. I have one negative on the production. And that is the choice for the guilds and the installations. I just found them very abstract. And, you know, when you're looking at these sector boards and there's some really cool, if you look up close on it, each sector has kind of different planets on it, different colored planets, but then it's also laid out in this kind of neat, like, you know, sci-fi background. But then those tokens don't really represent an installation or they don't represent, a, you know, a building of any kind. 
they're really easy to read. And I'm, I, I think I would appreciated that because you do a lot of calculation as far as like, okay, how many dice do I have here? How many, how many guilds do I have to, you know, upgrade on my production, you know, board to match that up and stuff like that. So it was very easy to use, but it did take a little bit away from the theme to me. But that was really the only thing I would say I had a, you know, a minor complaint about it. I, it's not serious. I, I wish they could have found a way to represent those that looked more like something that would be usually i'm the one complaining about these kind of things but i feel like i have to defend this game a little bit in this case because i feel like they did that out of necessity there's a lot of stuff happening on these hexes so for those who haven't seen the game along the top of the hex there is i think four or five slots little 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 areas where you can put triangles where you can put a base or a, a shipyard or what have you and then at the bottom there is three more spots where you can put the guild or the production facility. And then there's a spot for a die that's going to tell you what the population of the area is. So there's a heck of a lot of stuff going on in those hexes. And I feel like if they tried to get too intricate with that, it would have been a little bit much. I mean, I I always love to see something that's more representative, but I think in this case that they probably did the right thing. I don't think you're wrong about that, Chris. And maybe they tested some other stuff out. you know, I wish they could have pulled it off, but you may be right. This was the best way to make it easy to use and easy to read. And it definitely worked that way. And, you know, by the time we were done with the game, I was just looking at it and saying like, okay, how much, how many banking guilds do I have? How many, you know, um, uh, shipyards do I have? And it was very clear for me to see that they represented those things easily, obvious to read. A couple nitpicks for me, I, the dice on there, I wish they could do something besides a D6. That's kind of, it yeah. stands out as like bulky and weird. And maybe they will. And maybe they'll come up with something else. And then all the stuff, the the beautiful planet art gets washed out. It's so tiny and in the middle. I wish they could make it like full size or something. I know everyone's got their own takes on art and functionality and this and that. But, you know, I wish the sci-fi theme, they could have brought in some giant planets, you know, covering seven-eighths of the tile and then have the little plugins, the, the sectors and this and that. I, but they got to do what they got to do. I'm just... Yeah, and, and one thing, uh, you know, kind of the same thing as with the guilds is if you look at the, you know, the scope of that whole galaxy that we were in, the sectors that did have the huge planets, those were your starting planets. And it was really important to identify those easily at a glance because that was the only planet that other players couldn't take over or couldn't conquer. And so it did make those stand out. And so in a way, maybe that was just for usability as well. But then I was also, I was thinking about that and I was looking at the art and I was like, it's kind of cool though. Like if you look at the way that they're represented on the map, you do see wherever there's a planet, it's clear there. You know, you can see the planet, you can see the space behind it. But then there's kind of like these sci-fi, like, I don't know, technology lines kind of crossing over, crisscrossing over other parts of the, the map. So it gave it a different look, a different feel than just Eclipse. You know, like if they probably didn't want to just copy Eclipse and make, you know, just planets on a map. So this definitely has a unique look and feel to it. Hey, Adam, I want to agree with something you said about the D6. I mean, now that you say that, like, that really was a shortcoming here. Come on, Mind Clash. Seriously, a D6 to represent, you know, the population of a planet. Having said that, they did create these really cool little, I don't even know what you call this, but like these little cups that you set the dice in to indicate that they've been corrupted. That was kind of cool. Maybe that mitigates the crappiness of the D6 a little bit, but, you know, whatever. What if that D6 was a metal D6 and it had like people, like inset, like people illustrations to represent one, two, three, four, five, six instead of a, a single pip? 
Like they could probably make it a D six and still look a lot cool and, and problem solved, possible future stretch goal, right? <laughs> but hey, here's a question that I want to ask because I know that we really have different tastes in games. Tim, your hardcore resource management. Adam and I trend toward area control. In the end, what kind of game did you guys feel like you were playing, and did you feel like the flip side? So, for example, I think a lot of the mechanics were very resource management. The atmospherics were very 4X area control, etc. How did you feel at the end of the game? How did you feel about it? Was it a Euro game? Was it a 4X? What was it? I felt like I had just played a somewhat confusing Euro game. That's And that's where I land. Solidly in the resource management Euro game area. What about you, Tim? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. This is a Euro through and through. And, you know, I've said this a billion times, like, why do we have Euros with stupid, like stupid themes set in medieval cities or set in, you know, pre-industrialized London or whatever? That's what they did here. They made a a heavy, you know, Euro game, Euro strategy game set in a cool theme. And, And even, like I said, made some of the, some of the elements of what you're managing is your re- your defenses, your sh- your fleets, your ships. You know, it's not just like pushing, you know, uh, farm farming goods back and forth across a state line or something like that. It's it's doing cool things like managing cool resources. Uh, you know, and that's probably what a huge space battle would be like. It's fleet resources, it's logistics. It's you got to manage all the you, you got to like create more clones to operate your fleets, or you got to like farm from the local you know, uncivilized planets or whatever you would have to do in a, in a, in a galactic battle of this scope. No, that's no, what no, we were no. doing. You, we in were a galactic battle, the admirals. <laughs> you throw your guys out there, roll the dice and see how it all works out. And whoever rolls the dice the best wins the galactic battle. That's how it all works out, Tim. I, I hate to agree with Tim, but I got to say in this case, uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there's an old army saying, and that's uh, lieutenants discuss tactics, generals discuss logistics. And I think that's, I think you're right about that. I think that is very, that is very true in this game, that the scope of it, you, you end up spending a lot of time thinking about your resources, because that's what it takes to win a war. Yeah. And one other thing about the, the theme that I want to mention here is that there is a pretty neat backstory that Mind Clash has been kind of building to to get this Kickstarter created. If you watch the first three days coming right up to the Kickstarter, there was a little story talking about this guy who goes back to his home planet and walks into the government building. And all of a sudden, everybody's acting weird, like the leaders there are acting weird. And then this this, this void born, these, or what they're basically doing is taking control of the people and then turning them into slaves, mindless slaves. And so he manages to get off the planet right as they're about to lose their minds and get taken over as well. And she's able to tell this other government, like, you know, a galaxy away about this. And that's how this insurrection starts up to stop this, the Voidborn. So there's a story that starts there. And then throughout this Kickstarter campaign, every day their their release has consisted of like talking about what's coming up new, but also having a new part to that story and where it's going. And you're getting introduced to these new civilizations. And that's during the stretch goals, the new civilizations are new player mats and things like that that come in that you've been introduced to. And they're very unique. And, and there's, there's a lot of story here. There's a lot of theme that they've put into this thing that is a Euro game. One of the other things that's kind of interesting is like, that you know the co-op version of the game that's supposed to be what happens when hey all these worlds have to work together to to stop this crazy force that's coming through and then the competitive is like hey we've we've stopped the voidborn there's little remnants of them left over the galaxy now we're working our ways to become back up to the best 
you know, the best governments again. So I think like Void, like uh, Mining Clash is known to do, they have tried to work theme consistently and heavily throughout this game. And I can't wait to see what the finished product looks like because I won't be surprised if there's like a storybook that comes with it or some heavy theme written into the into the actual, you know, rules book and things like that. And I think even though you're playing a Euro game, they're trying to give you a really thematic experience here. And I think you can you can get that out of it if you want it. I, I couldn't agree more, Tim. I if I'm gonna be kind of giving away my answer in the last segment here, but if I'm gonna be forced to play a Euro game, not even forced to play a Euro game, if a Euro game is around and I see this one right now, this is the one I'm gonna pick. All right, well, let's jump into uh, moments of the game today, memorable moments. Um, anything anything particular, Chris? What, what was a memorable moment for you? There, there was a couple of them and they were, they were disappointing moments, but ones that I would learn from for the next time. There's this tier on the progress track and I, we talked about it earlier, Adam raised it in the first segment where we talked about there's a politics, production, yeah, economics. Economics or something And then there like was that, yeah. politics. I was so proud of myself because I was getting ready to move up into that last spot and it was 40 points. I mean, 40 points is pretty significant. That's, you know, that's, that's huge. The spot right before that, the benefit it gives you is recreate a move from another card. And I thought, well, that seems a little too simple. Why don't I just recreate the one that lets me move up this track and then I'm going to get up there and bam, once again, I'm, you know, now I'm going to get my 40 points. <laughs> I was just getting ready to, in fact, I think I announced it and said, well, there, game's over. I just got my 40 points. And Tim pointed out, so you know you have to pay two fleet power cubes for that, which are huge. I mean, fleet power cubes are like, they're a rare resource that it's almost impossible to get and very difficult to, to live without. And so that completely set me back. So I just thought that was a funny moment because it was just purely an experience with the game, but it really pointed out how important it is to think through your move and to plan ahead and then to, you know, to act accordingly and that nothing is going to be easy, that everything is going, you're going to pay a price for everything. The, the standout moments for me were all learning moments. And the first, you know, two eras of this game, there were several turns where, it, you know, you guys spent, you know, five minutes each getting, take, taking your turns and talking through them and asking questions and getting through the iconography. And it came back to me and I should have had my hand, my turn all planned out. Right. And I thought I did. And then I'd start to go through it and always realize, oh, I just missed that one resource or that I just can't quite do that thing because there are these all these little levers you have to pull all over the place. If you want to move up this track, you got to do this thing. If you want to upgrade this technology card, you have to have met this you know, particular restriction. And so that was, it was tough at first. It was never frustrating to me. I actually enjoyed it every time. It was more just like, oh man, I'm sorry, guys, I got to make you guys wait again a few more minutes because I have to rethink my whole turn and figure out my thing. By the end of the game, I was like, I really, I felt like I really had it figured out. I understood what all the levers were. I understood what all the things I needed to be watching for and looking for were. And that was really exciting. This is a game that is not simple. It's, it's got a lot of little pieces, little layers on top of it, but I feel like they all paid off. You know, like they were interesting levers to push for me. That restriction on moving up the tracks and how the higher you got up, the you know, then there was some cost to get up higher in that track. It made it so that somebody couldn't just push up that track without also planning in advance and doing some other things to get there. Um, the fact that if you wanted to continue to stretch out into the galaxy while the voidfall are, are multiplying, that means you have to plan for it. You have to build up your fleet in order to continue to grow. You can't just like do that thing without thinking of the consequences of what's coming later. And every one of the cards had a different cost on it, whether it was putting voidfall out or paying resources. So you had to plan the resource management. You had to plan around the agenda cards. So so really it was all that the moments were always like those aha moments, either like 
oh man, I totally missed this thing. Now I got to rethink my turn or, ooh, now I really see how this all comes together and I can plan my next three moves out. And that was really exciting to me. So yeah, to me, it wasn't like something happening. It was more like, whoa, I just realized this game has another layout on it. What about you, Adam? Similarly for me, after spending hours in a Southern California freeway system of inefficiency, I broke free to the back roads and had it all to myself and started putting (laughs) the pieces together. And I was able to move into this sector, attack the Voidborn fleet, conquer them easily with my, Chris mentioned the technology, I had some autonomous drones or something to slaughter these guys. I was able to do that, get this bonus, move up this thing, go over here, grab this thing, and do like everything that you want to see happen in a resource management game, combo some things up. More than that, it was the pieces all coming together and it started to click for me. And that felt great. For a game like this, I was worried that might not happen the entire night, but it did, and it was wonderful. Yeah, and and you know, just to speak about that specific technology, for example, that autonomous drones, which Chris mentioned earlier, is like Chris, Adam had this amazing technology; he could just wipe the void burn out. But it wasn't that simple. Adam had to had to get rid of one of his very rare trade tokens to even use that ability one time. So Adam had to get a technology, had to get trade tokens. First, he had to get agendas to slot the trade tokens into. He had to get his fleet built up big enough before he could take advantage of this huge technology. And it was awesome. It did exactly what he needed it to do. But it, it, was, it, it was a lot of planning and a lot of pieces to put together, which to me is fun as heck. Like, I love those pieces of puzzle that you got to click them all together to make them work. And it worked here. And one of the other things that's interesting, maybe it's because I spent the whole weekend thinking about this game and reading the rule book and, and like watching pl- play videos... But even though it was a lot of pieces and it was a lot of iconography to get through tonight, I felt like it was comparing, let's say, to Cerebria. If you listen to my review of Cerebria last week, I talked about how tough that game was to get into and how hard it was to grasp the concepts of it and the terminology. And I didn't feel that way with this game. I felt like it was much more obvious what you were trying to get to, what you could do. And yeah, getting through the iconography is tough. And then making the decisions because you got so many decisions to make. But that starts to come together too. That starts to get more streamlined. And I think you play this two or three games and it's going to be, you're getting right in there and, and, you know, just whipping right through it. And I would like to present the award for understatement of the evening to Tim for this game is not simple because this game is not simple in the way that putting a rover on Mars is not simple. <laughs> I want to say one more thing for Mind Clash games. We talk about it all the time, how important theme is to us. And Tim, you mentioned it earlier. Mind Clash has just done a fantastic job of putting amazing themes on resource management games. Uh, tr- they started with Tracurion, Anachrony, Cerebria, and now this. I'm sure there's a couple other that I'm missing in there, but they just do an, an excellent job of turning what could be just a dry sort of puzzle into this amazing world. And I appreciate them for that. All right. Well, let's jump into our final question. And this is what I'm really interested to hear what you guys say. And that is, would you request to play this game again? We're right in the middle of the Kickstarter right now. All three of us at some point had thought that game looks really cool. Should I back this game? So I want you to answer both. Would you request to play it? And are you still considering backing it? Why don't I start on this one? Because I've asked you guys to start a few times, and I think I was the most excited about this one, mainly because I'm more of a Euro player, and we knew this was going to be a a heavier Euro type of game. But my excitement has really grown recently because of 
how much I love Anachrony, which I was introduced to like six months ago, and it's, it's not my number one game. The experience I went through with Cerebria and how much fun I got out of that game ultimately once I was able to get through the, the challenges of learning it. And that just got me more excited about what Mind Clash could do with this game because both of those games are fairly heavy games, but play great once you get into them, once you learn how to play them and just are dripping with theme. And they're just the full package. It's a beautiful production, great mechanisms, you know, clearly just every detail thought out. So, you know, coming into this, I was pretty excited about the campaign. And as I started to read the rule book and everything, I, you know, it just, it just got me more excited to play it. And then we started playing the first era and I was getting concerned. Like this feels like a bit of a slog to get through these first, this first couple turns. And, and I can hear Chris sighing and I can hear Adam's frustrated and, and I, can, I can just not picture who I'm gonna play this game with that's gonna have fun with it. But then we got through the second era and things were moving a little bit brisker and everybody was like kind of understood what they were going towards and doing these different things. And the fun just grew for me over the game as I got into it further. So basically I had a I had a totally fun time playing it. I wish we could have finished out our, our last couple turns. I was very frustrated that Chris took like 10 minutes on his last turn and I knew exactly what I wanted to do and it never even came back to me to do that. But you know, I had a great time playing it. I do have a concern. Is this going to get played very much? You know, if I pick this up, I don't know. But you know what? I don't think I care. I think that this game is beautiful enough. It does have a solo mode. And I think the gameplay is straightforward enough now that I think I could get into it and play the solo game fairly straightforward, you know, fairly easily. And I think it'd be a fun puzzle to do solo. Uh, but hopefully I can. Hopefully I can get it played with other people. I'm going to back it still. And I will be requesting to play it whenever I can find the right group that want to sit down and, and get through it with me. What about you, Adam? I am glad you're back in this one, Tim, because I will not be back in it. I don't want to have another anachrony situation where I bought it and it just sits here and then you were going to buy it off me anyway. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're back. Well, I don't need two copies. <laughs> I will be more than happy to play this whenever we cross paths, Tim, and I will request to play it when we do cross paths because this game is amazing from head to toe. Again, it's uh, do I need to own it? I don't need to own it. But I'm glad you're going to own it, and I'll be happy to play it anytime. But Tim, here's the question. Are you going to back the basic version or the deluxe version? Yeah, I'm going to back the deluxe version. You know, listen, it's an expensive game, and the deluxe version is expensive too. But I, I kind of mentioned it. It's a great kickoff when we were talking about the survey at the beginning. But I kind of think of these games as when I do add a game to my collection, it's it's a special game. It's something that I'm hoping to really enjoy for a long time. And yeah, I haven't played Scythe for a year, but I'm still in love with that game. I still want to play it. And maybe uh, Voidfall will get out once a year, but I want it to be an amazing experience when I have it out on the table. I don't want to be playing Space Core 2025 to 2040 or whatever, or you know, whatever that game was with just, you know, ugly, pla you know, cardboard shits and stuff like that. If I'm going to have a, an epic experience that only happens once in a while, I want it to be epic, you know, from head to toe. So the deluxe version for me. Chris. Are you going to request to play this and are you going to back it? There's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to unpack with this. I agree with pretty much everything that Tim said. I'm really concerned that I will play this game once a year and it's going to be with you guys anyway. And so do I need to back this thing? But I'll come back to that. The game is beautiful. It's everything that I like in a production for a game it was a Euro game that completely had me fooled. I mean, I was, yeah, you know, I was sitting there feeling like I was in the middle of a 4X. I love the theme. I love the components. I love the way that it, you know, they had the little weird Cthulhu-like tentacles coming up around the dice. 
I did not feel like I was playing a resource management game, but, but I was, and I thought that that was a really neat way that they handled this game. That said, I was frustrated for a lot of the beginning of the game because the iconography is so heavy. And I know that some of that might get fixed, but there's a lot of stuff that takes a lot of thinking and a lot of interpreting. And even by the end of the game, I don't think a turn went by that I wasn't asking Tim for a, you know, a rules call or, you know, what does this icon mean? And, and I guess over time, you know, that's going to go away. You're going to learn the parts and the pieces and what the icons mean. But if it's a game you're playing once a year, it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge. All of that said, I'm dying to get this game on the table again. I mean, I really want to play this again, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think it's one that if you played it in relatively quick succession, you'd really have a great experience because it's a game with a ton of depth. And if you're able to internalize those icons and some of those more you know, nitpicky edge rules, then it's going to be it's going to be a really great experience, especially if you're playing it with people who are hardcore gamers, who have played the game before, who know the game. It is a, going to be a difficult game to teach to people who aren't hardcore gamers. I mean, for example, I play games with my wife and she even likes some heavyweight ones, things like terraforming Mars and, you know, high medium weights, like tapestry, things like that. This is a game I would never pull out to play with somebody who wasn't serious about gaming. Now, all of that said, it's just too beautiful to say no to. So it's probably a pretty good chance that I'm going to back it. (laughs) And I can't have another one of those situations like Eclipse where, you know, Adam's got this gorgeous game sitting in his house that, that I, you know, total FOMO. Total FOMO. So I think the answer to both of those questions is still probably yes. That's a, that's awesome, Chris. I, you know, I'm actually, again, I'm, I'm pretty surprised because I assume this was going to be much a heavy Euro and something that you would find too dry. So I'm really glad you enjoyed it and, and, you know, enjoyed it enough to actually consider backing. I, I think that's pretty cool. It says a lot about mm-hmm. this game. You know, if you're a new listener to our show, Chris leans towards the very thematic, high production quality you know, exciting troops on a map games, adventure games, things like that. So this uh, obviously still hits some of those, you know, some of those triggers that make, that get you excited. Uh, I agree with you, Chris, about the teachability of the game. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge with it. I think it's worth the, the hurdle. Uh, interesting. Again, I'll go back to my review of Cerebria from last week, that that was really hard for me to learn and internalize. But teaching it, I felt was pretty relatively easy. Um, it's easy enough to talk about the components on the board when you're teaching it to somebody. This, I think, will be much harder to actually teach. And it gives somebody the information they need to be able to make strategic decisions on a first play. I think this is a game that will be very hard for someone to uh, do well at playing competitively on a first game. And I think I think the teach could be a real challenge. All that said, I think it's a hurdle I'm willing to jump through and, and hope that I can get it taught to some people. But I agree, Chris. It's 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 not going to be an easy one, and it's got to be with the right group of people. But I think one it's wild card that I'd throw into this whole mix is that Adam brought to our attention another game which looks like there may be some thematic overlap, and that was Fractal, which he listed as one of his top upcoming Kickstarters. And I don't think that it's gone live yet. I think it's just getting ready to go live. But... Yeah, tomorrow. tomorrow. And I'm really interested to see how that game looks and whether it looks like it's going to play similar to this game or whether it's going to be more of a traditional 4X. Because as much, you know, I, I'm not nearly as uh, specific, you know, particular about my game collection as Tim is. He only wants the games that he loves and really feels strongly about. I, I'm okay with having a few games around that look beautiful but aren't you know particularly useful to me. Windward. Yeah. Win- uh, windward. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is one where I, I would want to see what the overlap is there because I'm not sure I need to own both of those 
or maybe I do. I just don't know. But I can definitely see, you know, there's these two big Kickstarters that are coming out around the same time that seem to have at least some thematic overlap. And I'm really curious to see whether that's actually true or whether it's just, you know, a couple of space games and that that's the only similarity. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. And listeners, if you're interested, we're going to try to get a, a play of Fractal in before that Kickstarter ends as well. So you may be able to hear our thoughts on that. Can't guarantee it's going to happen depending on some scheduling things. But um, but just might happen. Uh, any final thoughts or you guys ready to move on? One final thought. I feel like I need to say something about Gaia Project because Gaia Project is one that you guys mentioned a couple times during the course of playing this game. And it's one that I walked away from with a generally negative feeling. This is a game that has probably a lot of the same things that I was concerned about in terms of complexity and maybe over complexity as Gaia Project. But for whatever inchoate reason, I walked away feeling really positive about. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means, but but it's in my head. I think it's an interesting comparison. Um, I think both, you know, heavy space-themed Euros, and, and I think there are some similarities, but they do feel very different. I have Gaia Project in my collection and will never get rid of it, and I think this has a place there, and it's going to feel like a different gameplay, and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, I think I'm going to be happy to have both of them. All right, well, I think that will wrap up our conversation on Voidfall. We're going to talk about a few things that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. So we've got uh, just a couple things to talk about today since we had a pretty long conversation on Voidfall there. Um, Adam, why don't you start? What have you been playing this this last week or two? I just received my copy of the Dragon Prince Battle Charged. And this is a game. It's by designer is Johnny O'Neill and the publisher is Brotherwise Games. And this is based on the IP of this cartoon series that's on Netflix right now. And it is thoroughly enjoyable i think it's geared towards kids but i love it my daughter is six i think i like it way more than my daughter does i mean, for sure i like it way more than my daughter does i'll just be watching this when no one's around i don't know why i'm telling you guys and our six listeners that we have but i love this this show it's great it's got adult humor it's got it's just very representative excellent stories fantastic artwork so is the game any good i think it is really good you have these characters from the show they all have a thematic deck of about i don't know 20 cards or so and so you play two characters at a time if you're just playing two people so it's 2v2 but you're two of the characters and you work in concert with each other you draw seven cards and you play one attack one move and any number of other cards as long as you can pay for them and if they apply and you execute that and so you're moving around on this map there's six different maps all from locations from the show it's a grid it's i guess it's like a tabletop tactical skirmish game is what this this can be called kind of like i think it's kind of like unmatched i've never played unmatched so i don't know but there's aspects of terrain and line of sight so you have to be aware of that and it's just a fun game the cards represent the personalities and characteristics that the characters have in the show perfectly. All the artwork is screen captures from the show and the artwork from the show is beautiful and it's all executed very well in this little package. That is the Dragon Prince Battle Charged by 
Johnny O'Neill and Brotherwise games. How many players does that play up to? It plays up to four. So you can have, well, it says here six. Now I feel like I'm one <laughs> because it says here two to six players. But I don't see how you would do that because I think you can only do two versus two. Maybe I got to read the rule book harder for some six player variant. But that's all I am aware of is as two versus, you know, you'd still do a team two versus two where each player is one character. Yeah. Hey, Adam, this is a show that I'm not familiar with. Do you feel like this is one where you kind of have to know the show to really get into the game or does it really just stand on its own? I think it would definitely help if you knew the show because everything about this game is, you know, has little snippets and scenes from the show. Maybe if you were just into dragons and magic and mages and stuff like that independently without the show, which I'm not into. Um, But having seen the show and knowing the characters, it brought me in immediately. I wanted to buy this game because of the show. So yeah, it would definitely help. And I'd say, you know, very fringe if you're on the edge and this is just your thing without knowing the show, then you might be into it. Fringe like the people who play board games. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to bring you guys back in history about 130 years. The city of Chicago is burned down by a fire. Chris's uh, birth. Oh, come on now. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> from a cow kicking over a gas lamp and this whole city's burned, but they're trying to rebuild it. And what's the, one of the best ways to do that is to bring tourism money in. And so Chicago vies for the World Fair in 1893, and they managed to win it. And in order to support this huge fair, they build up all these buildings and parks. They build up new uh, structures to support all the traffic, the millions of people that are coming to Chicago from all over the world. And right in the middle of this, this rebuilding and this huge event that's happening, a murderer shows up in the city and starts killing people. And he actually ends up buying a, a building with the pharmacy attached to it and pretends to be the, the person running the pharmacy. But it's also a hotel behind. And he's actually built this kind of maze of booby traps and murder rooms and all this grotesque stuff you can imagine. And so that's the reason I'm uh, sharing all this is because the game I played was Crimes in History, H.H. Holmes Murder Castle. Now, if you want to read more about this interesting character in this interesting time period, there's a great book called The Devil in the White City. It's uh, by, I think, Eric Larson is the author, and it's a nonfiction book. It, it's really fantastic. I found the history of Chicago even more interesting than this mass murderer that lived at that time. But that's how the game set up around. The game set around H.H. Holmes. So wait, this, just to confirm, that's all accurate. Everything you just said that yeah. actually happened in Chicago. Yes, it's it's all accurate. H.H. Holmes was a real person, and the the place and and you know this the crimes that he was involved with. That's what this game is set about, and it's it's all it's all true, all real. So. Um, this game is set in H.H. Holmes' murder castle, and you are one of the people that maybe helped him build this castle. You didn't know at the time that he was doing something awful, but you had a suspicion, and the cops are coming down on you. They've, they've heard about some people disappearing, some things happening, and you might be a suspect. So what you have to do is try to collect enough evidence in this house that convicts Holmes and gets you off the hook without him catching you and killing you. And so the game plays in a lot of ways. When you set it up, you're going to look at it and say, this looks like betrayal at House on the Hill. You all start in a couple little starting areas. Holmes is in the basement somewhere. And the goal is to move around and find evidence around this house. But it's got some fun little Euro mechanisms to it that really elevate this above above that game, above betrayal at House on the Hill. So if you 
like Betrayal at the House on the Hill, I would say check this out because I think there's a lot more fun gameplay in here than you get in Betrayal and it's a lot more clear and concise and there's some fun moments in it. If you don't like Betrayal at House on the Hill, I still think this is a fun, light game. Basically the way it plays is that you have that kind of setup, modular setup where you've got a couple rooms showing and then there are five action tiles, five or six action tiles that players will take turns picking. It's like Race for the Galaxy in that on your round, a person's going to take one of the actions and everybody gets that action, but they get an extra bonus on it. So for example, one of the actions is explore an adjacent room and everybody can explore an adjacent room if they have one adjacent to them, but it's in player order. So the person that picked it would explore first, the person next to them, maybe there's only one door left so they can explore, but then the rest of the players might not even get that benefit. And then another action would be to move around and the person who picks that gets to move further. And then the next one is you can pull, you know, get evidence, but whoever, and basically evidence as a tile gets flipped over, there's gonna be some evidence cubes that get up on this tile based on the number that's on there. And the cubes come from this little, what looks like a carousel, but essentially it's supposed to represent the Ferris wheel. Another fun fact, the Ferris wheel was created basically to outshine the, the Eiffel Tower in Paris from the previous World Fair. So uh, Mr. Ferris created the Ferris wheel in Chicago, and that was the first Ferris nice. wheel ever invented. So anyway, they have this little resource management thing that looks like a Ferris wheel, and there's like five cubes in each of the sections of it, and you can only pull from the bottom section. And <clears throat> there's some things that'll move that around, but also when a section's emptied, then it rotates, and then different five cubes are available. So there's, a, there's like three or four different types of colored cubes that you're trying to collect for evidence. Yeah. So this is an actual component of the game. It's like a yeah. Ferris wheel with cubes. In yeah, it? it's it's laid down, so it's more like okay. a turntable. You know, it looks more like a like a merry-go-round, but right. it's supposed to Still represent cool. the Ferris wheel. Um, so cool. But so in, in any case, essentially, you don't always have the same types of evidence colors available. So you can know when you're going to trigger uh, that you're going to turn over an exploration tile. Well, what kind of evidence do you need? There's, you know, yellows, reds and browns in there, but I really need a blue. Let me flip the Ferris wheel first so that I can get to a different type of evidence and potentially pull it out there. So there's a little bit of a resource management to it. But the way that you are, what you're trying to do is basically fill up all four types of evidence. There's like four different types and then, and they're, tr they're little tracks. So, and they're, they're dual layer player boards. So you take these evidence cubes and you put them in these tracks. And if you fill up all four tracks, then you have to get back out to the pharmacy, which is like the exit, and then you win the game. So that's, that's basically what you're trying to do. Now, a couple things that are going to get in the way of that. One, every time that H.H. Holmes moves into your room, you lose, I'm trying to remember, you don't lose an evidence token, but he puts like a, a token on your board that makes your evidence harder to get. And if he ends up filling up all four of the slots that make your evidence harder to get, then you die, you're out of the game. So that's one thing, you wanna stay away from H.H. Holmes. And then other players are of course can race in and try to get the evidence before you, depending on the player order and stuff like that. And there's an event that happens at the end of every turn that that's gonna move H.H. Holmes, whoever flips the event. Um, gets to pick, like there might be three rooms available to choose from, so they get to pick where he goes, so they can send him after a player who's, you know, collecting the most evidence. There are some asymmetric player powers. Everybody's got a player power they can use one time. So it's, it's some clever, fun, little, fairly simple mechanisms. I had a really good time playing it. I would never request to play it again, but I would play this a thousand times over. I, if Don't ever make me play Betrayal at House on the Hill again. I hate that game. It's a terrible experience. This gives you some similar feels, but actually gives you some agency, some choices to make. And it's just as fun, fun moments, fun exploration in it. So I, I would recommend this for, if that's your type of game, go check this out. It's worth, it's worth looking into. Uh, if, if you want to play, you know, a heavy meaty strategy game, this, it's not what this is, but, but it was a fun little uh, experience. Tim, how'd you find this? How'd you, how were you introduced to it? How, what kind of group did you play it with? Where, how did this come up? 
so if, so funny enough, I was actually I heard about this game a couple years ago. I think on Blue Peg, Pink Peg, and I it stood out to me because I really love that book, Devil in the White City. So when he was talking about it, I was like, oh, cool. I always love the lore of that story. But it didn't really sound like a game for me, so I wouldn't have picked the game to play. But I was just at my local gaming club, and we were just wrapping up a game, and I had about 45 minutes more, and I had to leave. And so someone was like, hey, I just picked this game up, and it's a shorter game. Do you want to play it? So that's why I jumped into it, because you know I had a little bit of time to play with it, and I just wanted to let her get her game plan. And we played a, I think it was a five-player game. I think it plays up to six. We had either four or five players, and I think we got it done in 45 minutes. So it's a relatively quick game, but again, with some fun little decisions in it. I liked it more than I expected to, so uh, it's got that going for it. All right, well, I think that'll wrap us up. Chris didn't have anything he wanted to chat about this week. He's been too busy with real-life stuff, so um, I think we'll we'll wrap up this episode. You know, listen, we love to chat with you all, and uh, if you'd like to find us and chat with us, leave your thoughts on our show, ask questions about our uh, game of Voidfall, we'll be happy to answer them. You can find us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes, at Facebook at Board Game Hot Takes, maybe at Instagram at BG underscore Hot Takes, but Jen hasn't really been keeping it up there. So I don't know. We'll see if we keep that one open. Let's uh, let, let, you know, Take hit her up gem. on there, send her some messages, yeah. tell, tell her to tell her to, to keep putting some, some pics up there. And, but anyway, you can find us on all those places. We'd love to chat with you. Also, uh, if you can help us out, leave us a review on, on Apple podcasts, or even, um, you know, if you hear about a game that we talk about and you decide to back it on Kickstarter or you buy it from a publisher, or whatever, let them know on social media. Let them know that you heard about it from us. You know, I think it, it helps us. We're going to get exposed and access to newer games from publishers if they know that, that we're selling games to people. So keep that in mind. All right. I think that'll wrap us up. Until next week, take care, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>